0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing if you're able. Turn in your scriptures to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, reading from verse 18 to verse 23. And I'll remind you that just before this verse, we've read of Paul's. Uh, Rightful pride in the gospel. He's not ashamed of it. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. And we pick up this reading now in verse 18. Let us hear God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We pray now, Lord God, that we would see your glory, not just manifest in the creation, but in your wonderful character through your word. Pray that you would exalt uh, your thrice holy name before us, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as our savior, and imprint upon us, Lord God, these words that our lives might conform to your word. Lord, we need you in everything we do, but especially now. Be with us, we pray, for your name's sake and in the name of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, with chapter 1 and verse 18, we begin a new section of uh, the epistle, a section in which Paul is going to outline man's sinfulness and his condemnation by God. All have sinned, says Paul. And Paul is asserting this truth not just for the Gentiles, he is also asserting it for the Jews. You see, Paul is going to diagnose the depravity and the wickedness of man. And we see that depravity uh, described for us briefly this morning. Though man knows God, he does everything in his power to deny God, to subvert the truth, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, And this wickedness, this suppression, and this condemnation is a universal reality. The wrath of God upon wickedness is a universal reality. Reality. And Paul is going to show us that God is righteous in judgment as assuredly as he is righteous in salvation. We'll see this really in two parts this morning. Verse 18, where we see the wrath of God revealed, the wrath of God revealed. And then in verses 19 to 23 is the explanation of why the wrath of God is revealed. That's the reason for the wrath. Of God, so the wrath of God revealed, and the reasons for that revelation. And so what we have first of all is the wrath of God revealed for us there in verse eighteen. As I mentioned, Paul is starting a new section, starts one eighteen and goes all the way to th- chapter three, verse twenty, establishing the guilt and unrighteousness, the wickedness of of mankind universally. And God's judgment upon that wickedness. We read in chapter 3, verse 10, we read, None is righteous, no, not one. And that's Gentile and Jew by that point in the epistle. Not just the Gentiles are unrighteous, the Jews who had the law are also unrighteous. Why? He says in 320, the end of this section, For by works of the law, No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's speaking, therefore, about a universal reality, the guilt of man in sin. And he says here, against such guilt, the wrath of God is revealed. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their righteousness, suppress the truth. There's really three main elements to what Paul is saying there in verse 18. There's the wrath of God from heaven being revealed. We learn it's secondly revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And thirdly, we, re- we see a description of the ungodly that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You need to understand Paul's trajectory. He's defending the righteousness of God in judging men. All men have sinned before him. So Paul says in chapter 1 verse 18, there is such a thing as the wrath of God and it is revealed from heaven. It's interesting, is it not? In the previous verse, he's just said something else is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel of God. That righteousness that God imputes reckons to the sinner in salvation. And now we have the very opposite of that. Not not the saving work of God, but the condemning work of God. Just as God is righteous in salvation, verse 17, he is righteous in condemnation, verse 18. And wrath, or wrath, as you like to say, incorrectly might I add, but wrath is actually a very serious word. We we know another word anger. I think wrath has something more to it than just anger. Wrath is a very powerful word. A very, very strong word indeed. John Murray writes this on the issue of wrath. He says it is unnecessary, and it weakens the biblical concept of the wrath of God to deprive it of its emotional and effective character. Wrath in God must not be conceived of in terms of the fitful passion with which anger is frequently associated with us. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which contradicts his holiness. He says we ought not deprive God's wrath of the emotion. God's not a machine, He's a being, a person. When we think of God not having passions, as Pastor Rockham will speak to a little bit in Sunday school, we're saying precisely what Murray says here. We don't conceive of God's wrath as being fitful or controlling, he being subject to his passions or emotions, though he perfectly is anger, perfect anger, as he is in all his attributes. Wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which contradicts his holiness. The contradiction of God's holiness equals sin. You see, friends, God's holiness separates him from everything else. It makes him transcendent. It makes him altogether different, above us, far from us. It makes him unstained, We can think of God in many ways with respect to his holiness, but think of him as the great and holy creator. He is set apart from his creation. He is the creator. We are the creature. He is not subject to his creation. He stands outside of it and above it. Or we could think of God as the holy law giver whereby he is never censured by his own law. In fact, the law is a reflection of his perfect moral character. We could go on and on speaking about the holiness of God. The point is this, the holiness of God means God is categorically distinct from his creation and all its environments. So when the creation, in this case, Ungodly and unrighteous man turns away from God. Now let's be clear: man, man doesn't turn away from God. Man commits treason against God. Unholy rebellion against God. The great holy creator. When the creation turns against its creator, when those that are made under under the law turn against the one who is the law, we begin to get a sense of the profound offense that sin is towards God. Because God is holy, he hates sin. And because God is righteous, he must punish sin. And here's a great Inconsistency that we'll shown, uh, will be shown again in verses 19 following. The great inconsistency that is found in almost every unbeliever and in some believers. A real inconsistency. That if someone commits a sin or a crime against them, they want justice done against that person. But he deplores the idea of God's justice being applied to him who has sinned against god the point paul is making here is this yes there is such a thing as the wrath of god but it's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and those two words ungodliness and unrighteousness have been chosen carefully by paul no doubt ungodliness has moral overtones god is godly sin is ungodly it's ungodliness, it's anti-God in every respect. It's an affront to his divine character and his work. Unrighteousness speaks to a simile in moral tones, but also carries with it a judicial idea, a court-based idea. That is to say, unrighteousness is an action, yes, against the character of God, but tells us that man is therefore guilty before God and subject to condemnation. Words chosen carefully to show the affront to God that sin is. And words chosen carefully to show that all men are morally culpable and subject to condemnation. Now, why is that wrath to be manifested? Why is God showing, revealing his wrath against all ungodliness? Tells us there in verse 18 again, those men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is really the fountainhead of verses 19 through 23. This is the big idea, if you will, the suppression of truth in unrighteousness and by unrighteousness men seek to suppress the truth and paul clearly by the grammar he speaks of of here that this was a has always been the case it is a present reality and it will always continue to be the case in men. It's in man's nature, sin nature, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That is to say, brethren, there is an intentional and active denial of God according to the wickedness of men. And whether wickedness is intentional or learned wickedness, nonetheless, both are an attempt to dethrone God to deny his divine rights, assert the sovereignty of man over God, to establish our own righteousness, our own morality, our own will. The suppression of the truth is an attempt to suppress God. That's why the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Proverbs fourteen twelve tells us this there is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Its end is the way of death. This is the way that seems right to man. Ungodliness, unrighteousness, the suppression of the truth. And Paul now, in verses 19 to 23, explains the dynamics of that suppression. How and why and what is going on in this suppression? Really, he's providing an explanation or the reasons behind this suppression of truth. This is our second point this morning. The reasons for the wrath of God. Well, we've seen the big reason is this. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But as you look at verses 19, 20, 21, and then also 22 and 23, we'll see reasons developed. Verse 19 starts with the word for. Here's the proposition. Man suppresses the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Verse 20 also starts with the word for. For his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived verse 21 also starts with the word for for although they knew god they did not honor him as god you see what paul's doing he's given us that central thesis why the wrath of god is being revealed man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and then he provides at least three arguments to buttress that statement The first is this, verse 19, God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness because men seek to suppress what is plainly known about God. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Did you hear that? Plain, simple, easy to see. What can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. It can be seen. Why? God has revealed it. Paul is saying this. God can be known in a certain way. God can be known because God has revealed himself to the world. Uh, That's to say that man has been created in such a way by God, the image of God. Man has been created in such a way that he can know God in a certain way. And this revelation of what is known, we can see that there, what can be known, is first by God's imprint upon our very lives. We call it the image of God. God has made us for a purpose. He's equipped us for that purpose. The ultimate purpose of human, human beings worshiping and communing with God. Ultimate purpose, nothing greater. And God has made us for that very purpose. So we know God by virtue of his image imprinted on our lives. But we also know God by what is around us. He has shown it to them. He's going to say to us in verse uh, 20 that all things we can know about God have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that were made. Those made in the image of God can see God in creation and by their consciences. Is there anyone here today not made in the image of God? Don't put your hand up, you're wrong. That means, dear friend, you can see God in creation. You've been made to see God and you can see God regardless of what you or anyone else out there might say. To deny God is to deny the undeniable. To say God is unknowable is to deny that which he has revealed. It's to deny the very manner and purpose of our creation but what can be known about God? Can unbelieving man know God savingly just by the image and by looking at creation? Paul says no. Verse 20, he tells us what can be known of God, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. Two things he says can be seen in creation through the image, his eternal power, his divine nature. How do we see it? In the things that have been made. They've been clearly perceived, he says. Clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God's attributes have been revealed by virtue of the image of God in us and the way God has created the world. We know what attributes are, don't we? Attributes are what God is. It's not what he's like. It's what he is. He is the very definition of these things, as we've been seeing in Sunday School recently. Scripture tells us that there is a God, and that God is all-powerful. Creation and the image of God tells us there is a God, and that he is all-powerful. His divine nature, there is a God, and his great power, he is all-powerful, can be seen in creation. So, dear friends, think on this. When the unbeliever says to you, I'm sure you've heard it. When the unbeliever says to you, I do not see enough evidence for God, and you reply, perhaps a bit sheepishly, will look around you, you're actually repeating the argument of Scripture. And, dear friend, there is nothing weak about the argument of Scripture. There is nothing weak about this truth. Now, we don't leave the, the conversation there, of course. The text actually tells us we can go much further with the one who denies, with the unbeliever. It's not that there's, not ins- or there's insufficient evidence to see God. That's not the case. The text has already told us that. Rather, what we can say about the unbelievers, they can see the evidence. They just don't want to believe it that's the truth. They want to suppress it. Even though they see it, even though God has revealed himself in this manner, the unbeliever refuses to see it, to hear it, and believe it. Never grant the premise. Never grant the premise. There's no evidence for God's the word of god tells us different what can be known about god namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world never grant the premise of unbelief you see this is not a subjective thing this is objective the evidence is there they choose not to accept it, that mind, dear friends, is irrational. Contrary to rational thought, that mind, that conclusion—there's no God because there's no evidence—irrational. It's right before their very eyes; they choose not to believe it. Listen to verse twenty-one, four although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's there, black and white. Black and white, plain and simple. Just like seeing God in creation, plain and simple. It's evident, always has been evident, always will be evident. Paul is saying there is a choice that has been made. The unbeliever makes a choice. It's a choice to deny what he knows, a choice to suppress his conscience, to suppress the image of God in him and to attempt to suppress the evidence for God that can be seen. And that's why... Dear friends, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness because it's a sin against knowledge and a sin against what can be seen and what God has revealed. Paul says people who are like this have become futile in their minds. Think on that, dear friends futile dictionary definition of futility incapable of producing good results we could say incapable of producing righteous results futility of mind as a result of the denial of god and because they deny god they refuse to worship him They knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It says their foolish hearts were darkened. Think on that, friends. We know that scripture uses darkness in a moral way, the darkness of unbelief. Scripture says the love of darkness does not allow a person to come to God but it also says here that darkening of their hearts is a result of their denial of God. The more a man denies God the clear evidence before his own very eyes, there is a judgment of God of continued darkening on his heart. That is to say, friends, darkness motivates a man to denial, and greater darkness is the result of god denial it's a cycle of ever increasing futility and darkness of mind and heart and where does this darkness lead people it leads them to a foolish immature degeneracy of mind of life and worship verse 22 claiming to be wise they became fools You hear that judgment? Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Friends, I want to say to you the supposed sophistication of the atheist or the agnostic, the arguments they give in favour of their supposed autonomy and reason, might appear to be rational, wise, and even confounding on the Christian. Scripture says this they're fools. They're fools. Thinking is immature. Thinking is irrational against reason, against evidence, against God. The denier of God operates at the same level as that little child we've all seen, it who puts their hands in front of their face and says, you can't see me that's how irrational unbelief is and this affects their worship verse 23 as we come to an end claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepings creeping things Man's capacity and zeal to deny the living and true God is remarkable. It's almost comical in some ways. I don't like God, so I'll make another. And I'll make him after my own image. I'll make him in the form of a man or an animal or a creeping thing or a bird. And he can look like me, he can sound like me, he can think like me, and therefore he can validate me in the way that I want to live. What, about, what an exercise in futility and folly. It's a profound offense against the living and true God. That's why the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There is indeed a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. But lest we make the mistake of thinking too highly of ourselves and sit in judgment on the folly of man, If the Apostle Paul were here today, he would say perhaps the same thing to us as he said to the Corinthians in a different setting. When we think about the immaturity, the irrationality, the denying of God, the futility, the darkness of mind, he would say this to us, and such were some of you. Such were some of us. Futile in mind, dark in our mind, denying God. Foolish, immature, irrational. Let us never forget, in Paul's diagnosis of the sins here, principally the Gentiles, and then as he moves into the Jews, he's speaking also about us. Us. Our sin was a profound offense in the face of God. Some of us lived with darkened minds. Many of us lived in denial. In terms of our sin, there's a sense in which we're no better than the people described here. Yet for the Christian friends, there is a remarkable miracle. If you're a Christian, dear friend, you are a living miracle in God's creation. Your life is a living exhibit of the supernatural power of God in salvation. You see, Paul speaks here of a growing futility, a growing darkness. He'll say in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their flesh. He consigned them to it. He left them there. They chose it. They want it. He left them there. What's the miracle, friends? God did not give up on you. God did not give you up to your sins. God did not consign you to the lusts of your heart. He delivered you. If you're a Christian, he sent his own son that his son might face his holy wrath at the cross instead of you. He reckoned his Son's righteousness to you, dear Christian, that you might stand before him on that last day of judgment. Instead of your darkened minds remaining, to use the language of our catechism, he enlightened our minds in the knowledge of truth. He united you to the Son, the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Christ, so that God's face is not darkened towards you in broth but that the light of his countenance might shine upon you. That should cause us, cause in us, the greatest humility, the greatest humility we can imagine. It should cause in us the greatest devotion and love and service to God and each other should also cause any here who do not know Christ, listen to this, to abandon your irrational faith of unbelief. Unbelief is a faith. It's a failing faith. It should cause you to abandon that irrational faith of unbelief and come to Christ. He will give you all that you need. No longer, friends, has the wrath of God been revealed in us, but to quote Paul again in Romans 5 verse 8, but God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Gracious God, we bless and magnify you. There is no God like you, perfect in all your ways glorious in your being, holy, and yet loving and merciful to your children. Bring mercy and salvation to this house this day, to any that do not know you. Lord, convict us all of your great holiness, your great power and righteousness in judgment, that, Lord God, we might constantly flee to you for mercy and for kindness. We praise you and bless you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.